Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 8 of Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. We've just finished three really excellent episodes where we got a chance to meet with Chief Vincent Mann of the Ramapo Turtle Clan. The Turtle Clan, right. Right. Boy, that was really that was really fascinating. And today, what are we going to talk about today, Chuck? Well, we're going to start the section in the book on Fordism. Sounds like we might be getting to the heart of the problem. We're, we're getting there. Yeah. All right, so without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome Dr. Chuck Stead, Chapter 8 of Get the Let Out. Fordism, Part 1. By the mid-1960s, the Ford Production Plant in Malwa, New Jersey, celebrated its 10th year as one of the biggest automaking centers in the country. Riding south on Route 17, out of the mouth of the Ramapo Valley and crossing the state line into New Jersey, the plant swept the open space of the terrain to the east, where once a country club with a small airfield was located, and long before that, a meeting place for Lenape and other Algonquin nations. This plant was a long series of connected rectangles that was fronted by a vast parking yard for its employees. At the center of the structure was the Ford logo, a familiar script of its name hung over the front entranceway. At night, this logo illuminated like a beacon, heralding Ford's presence at the mouth of the valley. It faced directly west across its parking lot front lawn to the south-north lanes of Interstate Route 17 and up the slope of Hubenkoff Mountain. From the front seat of my Uncle Mal's pickup truck, I could see the score of parked cars in Ford's lot, and I noticed that it was not all Fords that were parked there, and I commented on this. Uncle Mal was quick to remind me that a cornerstone of American enterprise was the freedom of choice. You're not, you're not fired. If you just drive a Chevy, that's okay. And you don't have to drive a Ford. But, but I, I hear that they give you a break if you buy a Ford from them. You know that. Mal himself drove an international pickup and not a Ford. Although his wife, my Aunt Evelyn, did drive a Ford Falcon. When I asked him about this, he said he was careful not to throw his allegiance all into one brand name. As we swung around the bend in the road, we drove past Reinauer's truck stop, an all-night service station with lodgings for the long-distance truckers. My Uncle Mal told me that the proprietor used to be a pump man at my grandfather's station up in Ramapo. He said grandfather let the truckers sleep in his back room, and that young Charlie Reinauer used to tell him that this was a potential source of income. Old John Stead scoffed at the idea of charging truckers for bunk space. But the young Renauer, he had a vision. Apparently, my Uncle Mal was impressed by Charlie's enterprise. The idea of seeing an opportunity and seizing upon it was something that inspired great admiration in Uncle Mal. For Mal, not unlike many of his generation, ingenuity, thrift, and opportunity were intrinsic to the spirit of American know-how. And this was embodied in the character of Henry Ford himself. Mal believed that in his own time as a young man, he witnessed a great advance in scientific management of labor with the emergence of Fordism. To get at what charmed my uncle about Fordism, one must consider scientific management of the labor force as originally conceived by Frederick Taylor, a foreman of the Midvale Steel Company in the 1880s. Taylor initiated a detailed analysis of each factory job. Here was a man whose systematic testing of 
alloy compositions, heating procedures, and cutting fluids informed advances in industrial steelwork, and it was with this attention to quantitative analysis that he advanced his principles of scientific management. Taylor was the originator of time and motion studies, functional foremanship, and scientific adjustment of employee relationship. His work rationalized assembly lines, piecework payment, and special incentives for speed. But while the theory was sound and useful, it failed to produce labor harmony. There was no place in the system for unionism. To the workforce, it meant hard work for less pay. Fordism worked out of and also moved beyond Taylor's scientific management. It required a grander reorganization of production along flow principles, a large wage increase to ensure labor security, and a curbing of the independent authority of the shop floor foreman. Whereas Henry Ford initiated his assembly production during the early years of the 20th century with skilled workers who had a voice about how tasks would be performed, as the size of the plant grew, the friendly, paternalistic environment gave way to a series of low-level supervisors. By 1913, as rapid growth in employment levels increased, labor turnover and absenteeism were also on the rise. It was in this atmosphere that Ford Motor Company introduced its assembly line. Interchangeable parts in combination with moving conveyors divided assembly work into simple tasks, which advanced technological and economic efficiencies. At the same time, repetitive motion produced increased mental stress and physical ailments. In order to offset the downside of mass production work, Ford engineers developed the construct of Fordism to include single-purpose machine tools and relatively high pay. The majority of the workforce was standardized to repetitive, routine, monotonous factory life. The Model T Ford, the iconic standard for mass-produced, inexpensive means of transportation, was the high mark of success for Fordism. Shop managers replaced standard general-purpose machine tools with single-purpose ones, since complex skills were rarely needed for assembly. Jigs, fixtures, and gauges were key elements in the production machinery for Ford assembly lines. These tools were actually referenced as farmer's tools, as they made it possible to teach young men right off the farm to make precision parts. At the heart of Fordism lay a complex social and economic strategy dependent upon employing a large-scale populace of unskilled workers, in other words, easily replaceable workers. The romantic notion of American know-how, which alluded to some Jeffersonian Renaissance figure of the gentleman farmer, was destroyed by industrialism, and with it the equally romantic notion of independence and self-sufficiency. My Uncle Mal often, as did his companions, they often spoke about the American know-how being that attribute of common sense applied to any daunting task that achieved the obvious resolution. He proudly told the story of his brother beating out the spray mechanic demonstrator with a switch stand painting competition, and boasted, of how the suited representatives were splattered with lead paint. But over the years, he himself learned to handle a paint spray machine. Once the technology was perfected, he praised its efficiency. This is perhaps a characteristic of the American persona, to embrace that which defeats you. 
admiring technocratic advance while keeping note of social and environmental cost. In this, Mark Twain, a great advocate of technology, remained pessimistic about industrial efficiency. As a young man working at typesetting in New York, he experienced the mind-numbing, repetitive motions that turn human beings into quasi-machines, while at the same time boasting to his family about technocratic advances in the printing business. The tension between the world of small town and the modern world shows up throughout Twain's writings as a vacillation between nostalgia and progress, though at times he cannot separate the two. In his greatest work, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Twain is often condemned for the extravagant burlesque that Tom Sawyer insists Huck and Jim act out in order for Jim to be rescued from captivity, as opposed to Huck's common-sense proposals. This last third of the book, bringing in the moralistic Tom Sawyer, has been seen as a distraction from the powerful theme of the narrative. But, for Mark Twain, it had a vital importance. Tom Sawyer represents the impracticality of traditional culture, and Huck stands for the Native American gift of coming to grips with reality. For my family elders, Huck's know-how was the reliable alternate from technology, because technology failed. But Tom Sawyer's over-construed pretentious morals were the building materials of progress. Like two sides of the same coin, the duality was inevitable. So there was a dark side to Henry Ford that played a role in his social construct of Fordism. Along with his orderly delineation of the workforce, Ford advocated a similar pretext for the social fabric. In 1919, he initiated his own weekly newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, with a high-flown motto of Chronicler of the Neglected Truth. Entirely funded by Ford, this six-page paper was a curious mixture of antitrust, progressive muckraking, and anti-Bolshevik demonizing. It is from the Independent that America first heard of the Prodigals of the Learned Elders of Zion, a document purporting to be the minutes of a secret Jewish conclave led by a grand rabbi at the first Zionist Congress in Switzerland in 1897. The purpose of this meeting of the Consortium of Jewish Leaders was to construct a blueprint for world domination. This was a warning, a warning of the future struggle to the death between Aryans and Jews. How is it that Henry Ford, the American icon of the self-made industrial genius, could have supported such a dark vision? And what effect did this have on his management ideal of Fordism? I believe the answer is at the root of Ford's primary education, which is also the base for an American standard that emerged out of the 19th century well into the 20th century, the McGuffey's Eclectic Readers. But we'll learn more about that in the next episode. I am looking forward to finding out about the McGuffey eclectic reader. <laughs> it sounds like a, another tool of the, uh, well, in, in these stories, I keep seeing that we're kind of back where they were again. Oh, yeah, now. yeah. History repeats itself all the time. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's why it's so important to know history.
Right. Because as you're repeating yourself and you're realizing, hey, we're falling back into that place we used to be in. That wasn't such a good place. I remember some of that stuff. I've read some. of. Maybe we can build ourselves out of that same spot rather right. than fall into the same place. Right. At least not make the same mistakes that we made before. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. 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 It's like I said in an earlier episode, I think I said this at one point, that uh, America has two original sins. And uh, that is the slaving of the black man and the annihilation of the red man. I, yeah. I learned that quote years ago, and I believe that Mark Twain probably said that quote. I'm not sure. I don't know if that's exact, but he certainly believed in it. We still do this. It's still a part of our history. We haven't gotten over the yeah. damages that we've done to ourselves. And and that's why it's important for us to know our history. The other thing that's really interesting here is, you know, I think of Jeff Bezos now and, you know, owning the Washington Post and everything. It seems like these titans of industry have figured out that you've got to you've got to be able to speak directly to the ear of the people. You know, yeah, yeah, Elon yeah. Musk has Twitter. He has the Washington Post. Yeah. And Henry Ford had uh, had his own newspaper. Yep. Yep, the Dearborn. In in the coming episodes, you'll hear more about how Henry Ford kept reproducing a lot of this anti-Semitic stuff and became the darling of the rise of the Third Reich. No kidding. It's pretty darn interesting. He worked very hard, by the way, to offset that with his uh, PR work on himself. Yeah. On on being, you know, the the common man's hero and so forth. He he's quite the character. He's a very complex guy, Henry Ford. I guess so. The anti Semitism was alive and, and thriving back then too. Very strong. Yeah. Very strong. And there'll be people you'll hear about uh major American figures and philosophers who will speak out against this. But um but he'd managed to market himself, Henry did, in such a way that they were lone voices. And he really remained at the forefront of, uh, in fact, he was honored by Time magazine at the height of his rampaging against the demonic Judaic brothers. You know, it's, it's really interesting to, yeah. to, to learn this. And, and, you know, you're hearing it now and, you know, they will not replace us and all this mm -hmm. other nonsense going on now. I can understand why somebody who who was ignorant of history and that ignorance giving way to fear, giving way to hatred, giving way to defense mechanisms. But Henry Ford's not a dumb guy. What, what motivated him? Well, we'll get into that, but what I'll, I'll tell you now, the reason I mentioned the McGuffey reader is I talk about the educational early on educational foundation of his thinking and pitted deep in that thinking is a, it's informed with a, a level of, kind of nationalistic supremacy, a kind of attitude that's very tribal. And part of that is identifying an enemy, having a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. So it sort of made sense that he would eventually identify a group, a large group that could become his scapegoat, that he could beat on a lot. And it's kind of fascinating where he takes that. And, and to tell you why that is, that, that's human frailty. You know, we're flawed. We're flawed. We were not made perfect. We were made capable of all kinds of things. No. And we seek perfection, perhaps. But in, in doing that, we're flawed with our visions of what we think that is. I mean, we just heard last few weeks, we heard Chief Mann talking about uh, his sense of what we might call religiosity or spirit. And it's, it's so encompassing. It's so wonderful to hear that. 
And yet, you know, we, we both know people who take on religion as a, as a political construct and use it against other people, which is so, you know, antithetical to, to what we believe or certainly what Chief Mann was professing uh, in terms of the, the brotherhood and sisterhood of And what of Christ said. And no, what Christ said. Yeah, it's sure. antithetical to what Christ said. Right. And yet they're claiming uh, an allegiance to a kind of Christianity that is... is uh, demonic you know we we know that certainly divisive you know yes. that's that's uh, which is really sad you know i mean yeah i think it's it's i was talking to a friend of mine and i said you know we were talking about religion and things like that and he said i i feel like it's left me i haven't left it you know i still say my prayers and i still have a relationship with god but i just don't feel comfortable anymore yeah and that and that uh he, he was actually uh, of the uh, evangelical group you know, it's it's tough for today. It's uh, it's sad. It's uh, it's unfortunate. But hopefully, it will come back around and we'll figure our way out of this. We'll, we'll get through this. Yep. We there's there's a, enough of us, I think, who want to connect. Yeah. You know, I think you know we'll find our way. Yeah. And a lot of it is telling stories. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no question about yeah. it. Now, when you started to mention the Ford plant, there, of course, the Ford plant was very iconic to all of us in this area. I couldn't get to your house without passing it. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? uh, right. So I'd see it, and it, it, I remember it's like a, almost monolithic. It was so huge and yep. you know uh, imposing, and and uh, you, know, you just saw the power of manufacturing here in America. <clears throat> and as you said, that that huge parking lot in front of it, and that kind of encircled the entire area, and and there was just all of this production was around it, and trucks and trains coming in and going out every single day all the know? time yeah day in and day they, out they they made a million cars in that plant before they reached their 10th year wow man a million cars coming and going from that well they built a million cars they had the the train spur right there the railroad yeah, spur and they were sure. shipping them out on on trucks and on on train cars and so forth yeah yeah really incredible uh the amount of production our story is going to eventually lead to, you know, some real malfeasance, you know, uh, in, in terms of the way that they disposed of waste and things like that. But there again, you kind of look at it, and you just think, really? I mean, with all of this power, with all of this strength, with all of this... They didn't have to do that. No, they didn't. They didn't <laughs> they, have to do it. They just did. But it's part of the hubris of, of the mindset yeah. that becomes, I think, tethered to the social fabric of what we're about, that we can just do this thing. Yeah. And, and you hear a lot of that. This morning, by the way, I talked about Tony uh, this morning, my brother-in-law, and uh, about you know what became of Tony uh, toward the end of his life because he had moved a lot of the Ford paint that was deposited in the Torn Valley. Yeah. And um, it's... It's tragic, but it's just one more example of individuals that don't matter to a multinational corporation. You know, they it's collateral yeah. damage. They just take death as part of, you know. Cost of doing of, business. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say part of their CBA, <laughs> the yeah. cost-benefit analysis. How many can die before we're in trouble? Right. If you're big enough, you can lose a lot of people. Man, oh, man. And that's something. And yet, you know, there was such a... There was a real sense, I thought, of uh, allegiance 
to Ford. Oh, because, yeah. Oh, they're building these cars in our area. Yeah, so yeah. every car my dad ever owned was a Ford. Yeah. The first car I ever owned was was that Ford Falcon uh, that your dad helped me, you know, bring back to life. I remember when paint we, we and, painted it. it was yeah. Like, yeah, it was the, the old compressor. I remember yeah. when we did that. At the paint shop, yeah. Do you know, Henry referred to the Model T. I'm giving away a little bit that's coming up. This is a preview of what's coming up in, uh-huh. in future episodes. He built the Model T referring to it as the people's car. Do you know what Hitler referred to the Volkswagen as? Volkswagen means people's car. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. there really was, there was, an, there was an alignment a, there. An alignment. Alliance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, oh boy. which is spooky. so spooky and creepy, and <laughs> yeah. but it's again, it's history. I mean, we should know this to to know that these things play a role in in the in the way things have played out. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. Yeah. Ford was the preeminent vehicle of that time because yeah. lots of other folks on the block in our little neighborhood had them, and and that was uh, you know, it's almost like you felt like well, you're you're honoring America and sure. you're rewarding you know our own. Uh, manufacturing capabilities and everything by uh, by doing that. So if Ford knew this and acted that way otherwise, do you think that he ever feared that the general population would would get wind of this? No, and- no, no. And, and he didn't mind them having wind of it. In his day, this was, I think part of what I'm trying to stress in these next few episodes is that in his day, this was allowed for this was accepted like saying the quiet part out loud you know that expression i think this level of anti-semitism was allowed for and it could be argued it it was in the hands of people like henry ford that delayed our our move to dealing with the rise of nazism yeah you know it could be argued that there was definitely a delay and it, and it could be argued that, yes, we got in and we did the right thing. And it was a wonderful thing that America did what it did. But it was postponed for quite a while. Yeah. And it was, you know, thanks to, in large degree, to a lot of people like Henry Ford, who were making money all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the end, I yeah. think Henry knew that, you know, his gold standard was he would keep making money and behaving this way. I mean, we're going to learn more about it, but this is a big part of what took us so long to respond to the horrors of Nazism. Yeah. I remember Winston Churchill saying, the Americans will always come through and do the right thing after they've exhausted every other possible. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's a good quote. That's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wonder too, once the war started. I guess he really had to change his position no, because no, 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 we'll get to that. Okay, no he he dragged right on into the war, wow. building vehicles for both sides, even while American boys yep. and yep, wow, yep, Gee. that's hubris. Yep, <laughs> he had a plant in uh, in Germany that was building Sherman tanks okay. and vehicles for the SS. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into that. Roosevelt got furious with this and uh, broke contract with him, insisted that they break contract and that we not purchase our military vehicles from Ford anymore. It it had been going on. He didn't stop them right away, but once it became apparent and we moved to another uh, uh, automobile company for for our vehicles and Fords were good. You know, that was a, a risk doing that, but he broke contract. Now, England couldn't break contract with him because England didn't have another good alternative 
for producing the, the half tracks, the Sherman tanks, or, or rather the American tanks or the British or whatever. They couldn't do that. So England had to keep their contracts with Ford, knowing full well that the Nazis were keeping their contracts with Ford. Jeez. And one of the things in my research that was kind of interesting to discover was when uh, Allies took over a tank, like a Sherman tank or what's called a half-track or, or the Jeeps or whatever, they had no learning curve because they were Fords. So they could drive them right away, mm. which is interesting to think as well. Right? Sure. Boy, it just shows you, though, how the... Capitalism. Yeah, you know, really. <laughs> it's I it's mean, rough. It's winner take all, yeah, right? It it's, is. It's, it it's is. The, and, and anytime you get into that kind of a head where I got mine and to hell with you, winner take all, you, that's, that's at the heart of division. Yeah. That's what breaks up a society and pulls yeah. us apart. Well, it's going to be interesting to see where the, how this story unfolds. But I guess... In order for the wrong to have been done, you have to have that kind of an attitude up front. And uh, you basically, I'm right and everything else is wrong. You know, and yet Henry Ford would say things like, the man who says he can and the man who says he can't, they're both right. Mm -hmm. So he had these very, very basic axioms of business, which were not particularly empathetic, but just simply said, look, there's only one way to get there and you've got to believe in yourself mm -hmm. and nothing that gets in your way matters. Uh, you have to just plow through it if you want to be successful. He was really a very complex guy, as, as we'll see in these coming episodes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, the levels of complexities and contradictions in this man. In World War I, he was against completely and felt it was bad for business. And he funded efforts to campaign against participating in World War I. 20 years later, World War II, he felt, was good for business. And that's because in 20 years' time, his philosophy had evolved to a much harsher perspective. But in both cases, the question of whether wars were right or wrong isn't the issue. The question was, how do wars affect business? Right. And in World War I, and again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but in World War I, he developed this really interesting thing called the peace ship where he financed the outfitting of a ship to go to Europe, to go to the Mediterranean, to, to go to what would be the ally nations, and convince them that you had to broker a peace, that a, a war was going to destroy civilization. He financed this project, and he would ride on the ship and be the, the individual that would represent the peace ship. And he told his team of people that worked for him, get me the most articulate, the most articulate pacifists that you can and get them on my ship and I'm going across the ocean with these people. And of course, he didn't see to the details, they did, okay? And then he gets on the ship and he goes out and he discovers all the articulate pacifists in the world that were booked onto the ship and had their staterooms were all Jewish. And he was horrified. It <laughs> never occurred to him that they'd all be Jewish. You know, those are supposed to be the bad people in his book. Yeah. And he was, but they were also all women. And, you know, and he was a, a demeaning, you know, misogynistic kind of guy, you know. So they were all Jewish. They were all women. And they were so happy to be invited on this thing, to go on this journey. And he was in charge of it. That's <laughs> and, wild. And he was already, he went through with it, 
but he cut it short. He got into the Mediterranean and they brought the boat back. And allegedly he did not vocalize his opinions as, you know, as he would so much in just a couple of years time. Right. later on but he was quiet through a lot of their discussions and a lot of their meetings and so forth i think the whole thing just embarrassed him but we know it did because when he got back to new york port and he got back home here and they all disembarked he had his company completely disassemble the ship mm. He didn't want the ship to remain in existence because of this faux pas this mistake that he had made I'll be damned. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that is is. such a wild story. Yeah. (laughs) There again, his his concern for his own personal Mm -hmm. appearance and and place in history, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of trumps everything else. Yep. Yeah. Wow. That is all right. Well, listen, this is very interesting. Thank you very much. Again, Dr. Chuck, we are starting to really delve into, I think, the heart of the matter and set up the platform from which the rest of the story really grows. Boy, so far, it's really been interesting. Thank you for that. And folks, we look forward to seeing you next week. What are we going to cover next week? Well, we're going to continue looking at Fordism, the background to his education and where this idea comes from and, and how it affects the social fabric that he's so concerned with. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we will see you again next week for another chapter in Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stepp. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the children's chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays, 
Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. 